if people have any questions. Um, do you have any plans for future books? I don't have any plans for future books. Um, in terms of the reading group itself, so we, we actually have plans to do a bike tour of the solidarity of economy of Newcastle to get everyone a bike and visit all the different locations, um, to do a bit of work actually mapping what the solidarity economy does and then from there um, decide as a group where we want to go. Um, personally, I, I haven't had any more thoughts about what next um, because we've still got to the end of the year's worth of reading groups Okay. Anyone else got a question? Uh, yes. I was wondering, I, I noticed I didn't, in, in that presentation and, and in the summaries and things, you didn't actually talk about the concept of the local economy. Mm. I mean, my, uh, my re recommendation, possibly not in city areas, but in regional and urban areas, mm. it's really useful in these sorts of discussions to talk about the local economy and the what they call a local economic multiplier effect, a way, way that money moves around the local community. Um, and even, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, 100-mile food and things like this, because even though it may be not as straight on the topic, it, it, it's often more acceptable amongst the community. Mm. And what people starting to consciously um, buy local is that they create more relations and sense of community with each other, and obviously, that tends to also mean, um, you know, you, 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 you're not relying so much on large supermarkets and, um, and, and multinationals and mm. things like that. I think being aware of the local economy is a good first step. So, you know, which enterprises that people can participate in. And we have a, um, the reading group, we have a, a showcase spot that people can share the initiatives they're part of. So um, Jared did one on the community power agency and, um, there's another gentleman who will do one on Thursday, uh, uh, tell the story of how they tried to start up a Bendigo bank in Newcastle and how that fell over and perhaps there's a bit of momentum now. So just even having the conversations about the local economy, I think is important, yeah. I, I completely agree with you. Um, I think the value of, of place-based economies are really, really important. And the nature of a reading group like the Commons and the nature of highlighting um, alternative economic activities uh, is that they will, for the very large part, uh, talk about local activities because um, these alternative non-globalised uh, capitalist um, activities are, because they're able to focus on local needs and care for local people, um, they're most often local, um, local activities. Uh, Vern Hughes, um, another way of coming at coming at this question is to ex explore historically the huge uh, social economy that Australia had in the past, um, in the 19th century. Um, and it's incredibly poorly known um, in Australia. I mean, in the 19th century, most healthcare in Australia was conducted through co-ops and mutuals and social enterprises. Um, it, people think it's always been done through private and public sectors. So I suggest to you in Newcastle, given that <coughs> Newcastle, in fact, has incredible history mm. of this stuff. Yeah, it does. In, in the late 1880s, the labour movement in Newcastle ran four primary schools and didn't want state education. They wanted to run their own primary schools and continued to run them into the 1890s as the, as the governments began building state schools. A lot of retail co-ops in, in Newcastle as well. So. Uh, an idea for a bike, another idea for a bike tour, I guess, would be to Historical. visit the sites where 
um, of, of what used to be on this site in the 1880s and 1890s. Yeah, well, there was some comment about that co-op that you were talking about. The history of co-ops in Newcastle has been a really strong movement. Yeah, it's very fascinating. Um, the populist movement in the late uh, 1800s, right, and that's really, if you look at the landscape of agricultural co-ops and credit unions in the U.S., um, it's a legacy from that period of time. And actually, there were visitors from Italy's civic cooperative movement, which was already well established at the time. And what they said was, it's remarkable what's happening in the United States, but if they lose their commitment to the political emancipatory project, which was a cross-industrial uh, agricultural alliance, these will just become ordinary businesses. And in fact, I think that's sort of what happened. Um, but that's not the end of the story. Actually, a lot of those Mondragon-inspired co-op developments that are happening now in cities like Cleveland are making use of those credit unions, Shore Bank in particular, uh, as a strategy for capitalization. Um, so I think it's, yeah, critically important to reconnect with the past. And it's sort of like what Ross was saying. Turns out the new economy is actually a different version of the old economy. We've had these thoughts before, um, just like I think the role of reading groups, yeah, 1970s. Here it is again. It's new for me. Um, it's new for younger people. Um, but that's because, you know, I think each generation has to learn how to live in community. That's probably what it comes down to. Yeah, it's Alan Gregg. Um, it might be representative of the time the book was written, but just coming back to the local economies thing, there's also that issue of local financing. There was nothing in the book, from what I remember, about crowdsourced uh, funding, crowdsourced equity. Um, it's a, um, most people know it's a new technique for local financing, but it's become very big in the last two or three years, uh, quite common now for financing local businesses. Been to Egypt five times. I know the country fairly well. I've done a fair bit of sociology and I've actually studied um, Arab and Islamic culture at the University of Sydney. Um, it's very interesting um, seeing the poverty in Egypt and how they survive. I've learnt plenty about cooperatives um, by studying the way the Egyptians live. Um, they often form themselves into um, a group, as we talked about um, in the early session. Um, everyone puts in a certain amount of money each week. It's $5 or whatever, and then they draw um, you know, out who wins, and it's you know, your turn, you get the £500. So obviously you want to get the money sooner rather than later. Um, another thing that um, I can pass on about the Egyptian economy which explains really the rise of Islam to a very large extent, why it's so economically advantageous to be a Muslim, and that is because so many health services are actually dispensed by the mosque, at the mosque, um, and that actually poses a bit of a threat for conventional uh, Western-educated medical specialists. But if you are really dirt poor, and the Egyptians really are dirt poor, there's 20-odd million in Cairo, it's a crush every single day, um, they live in garbage, you know, on the top of rooftops. They live in cans by the side of the railway. Um, it's very interesting how they survive. And they do cooperatise a lot of the time, and that's how they do survive. I'm not advocating for Islam, but I'm just saying that there are lessons to be learned. Um, if you look, say, for example, at Catholic Church in Australia, you, you could never see anything like that. You would never have seen anything like that. I wasn't able to come to the author session. So I'm interested in the kind of the age group of people that are coming and I'm particularly wondering whether there's anyone there that 
is an ex-steelworker or an, uh, from the mines, you know, the kind of people who were the backbone of the New Newcastle economy in the past. And I guess I'm interested in, um, you know, the, this idea of bringing up the history of these past mutual organisations is, is, is great and it needs to be done, but I think we also need to face up to the history of how they've been, how they were kind of squashed as well to some extent. Um, even within the union movement, even though they were closely associated with the rise of it. So I'm just interested in whether there's any um, reflection by people who have experience of having worked in um, the more unionised sectors of the workforce in Newcastle and what, what their perspective on alternative um, economy issues are. So. Um, we have a couple of people who were heavily involved in the union movement who were part of the reading group. Um, in terms of people who, and also interestingly part of the environmental consulting sector that's heavily relying on the mining industry, which is undergoing a, a range of changes. Um, but there's no people, as far as I'm aware, who are specifically um, come from that BHB steelworker background. Um, in terms of the age range, I suppose it does range from the 20, 30, 40s, and then there's some people in their 50s and... Um, yeah, so it's a, there's a, a range of ages. There's a number of students and then there's a number of um, just staunch activists who come along. Yeah, but no specific connection to that. But there's also some people who have quite a strong history in terms of there's the gentleman who, for example, has been part of the development of Bendigo Bank over history, but that didn't come up. And, you know, there's, there's still a bit of collective knowledge in the room. Okay, do we have any other further questions for this session? Russ, I'll come over with a microphone. Oh, I need the exerciser. I'm about to go into food coma. Yep. <laughs> Thanks, Selena. Oh, hi. Look, I haven't got a question, just a, a sort of historic note that something like this we had in the... Um, in the 80s, it, it was an organisation called the Australia, ASK, the Australian Association of Sustainable Communities, and we, we didn't have a premises like you did. We had a variety of premises we'd meet at quarterly, and it was essentially what we, today we'd call networking. People came along and talked about their projects and their organisations and what they were doing. So I'm really happy to see um, what you guys are doing. Um, it'd be better if it was in Sydney, of course, because Sydney's always a laggard in these things. You know, we've got the provinces here, <laughs> taking over. Um, so I just wanted to say congratulations and thanks for the, the initiative you're taking. When we started at my parents said, we did this in the 70s. We did exactly, we had the same furniture and the same cups. <laughs> like it looks exactly the same, like thanks. No. <laughs> the point about the historical stuff is, is, is not to, you know, think, oh, that was, that was interesting, um, you know, 100 years ago. Um, that's, that's not so important. What's, what's important is what, has ha what happened to that tradition of mutual self-help self activity and how was it actually killed off and squeezed out um, politically and culturally. And to me, that's probably the, the most important question to ask it when you approach the question of how to rebuild a new economy because the forces that squeezed out this stuff are the same forces that we have to tackle now. Um, I, I was, uh, well, I've been lucky enough to um, get to know a lady from Lock the Gate named Annie Kia over the last few years and saw her last Thursday talk about her 
learning journey um, towards using complex adaptive systems thinking for social movement organising, particularly in the Northern Rivers and the response there to the coal seam gas threat and, um, and what she's now taken around Australia. And it was really interesting because it just struck me how um, what Annie was talking about with their learning circle, which I think, Kenneth, you were, helped Annie set up, um, and that, that was a, a group of people from diff different state agencies and other organisations in the same region on the Northern Rivers in New South Wales. And they were all trying to learn how to use this concept of complex systems as organising principles and, and what, what kind of language they might use. And, um, and to, to hear Annie talk about things like basins of, attract, uh, basins of attraction and attract, uh, strange attractors and all these kind of language that you just go, what is going on, is almost, to me, inspiration for the idea that the, the simplicity and the, the actual intuitive nature of the diverse economies is, makes it so much easier for people to pick this up because it, it works in our everyday lives. We don't have to understand these kind of crazy ideas that some ecologists came up with. Um, and what they've done in that process, they've they set up a series of very practical um, kind of training processes where people could teach others in their communities how to go out and do surveying and ask people whether they wanted a coal, a coal seam gas field in their community or not. And I mean, obviously, the, most of the answers are pretty straightforward. But to me, I was wondering if we were talking about this idea of reading groups um, and maybe reflecting on the experience from the feminist movement, how, how would we replicate this or how would we kind of, um, you know, I, I hate the term, but scale up the idea of reading groups? How do we make it something that people can really take and get action from? I'd just actually like to echo that because I've been thinking about it a lot as well, about how place-based economies and place-based activities interact with each other um, while still retaining their uh, place-based integrity. Um, and can we have a diversity of, of movements, like a movement of movements? And how do they interact? Is it, is it just a, a media and a marketing strategy that we need to, to interact with each other? Is it, um, can we key in to those solidarity you know, YouTube videos or, or things like that? Or is there, is there a, a larger network you know, that we, we need to build up? So I, I was going to answer the question or make a comment if I could. Uh, my comment to your question is very simple. Nothing new under the sun uh, in the sense that uh, whether it be Jews or Christians or whatever, reading groups, exchange Bible group, break bread, etc., etc. It's not new. Um, hearing you talk about uh, complex adaptive systems stuff uh, was involved in some of that 20 years ago so um, not nothing's new in in some senses uh, uh, tapping into the wisdom of, of elders and communities is is probably a, a really good start okay we're just going to go to our, our last question oh sorry sorry Stephen do you want to comment on that one sorry I, mean, I just had I had a cheeky answer, which was we do have these marvelous institutions called universities, um, and yeah, and books like Take Back the Economy, and there are many others, and I can think of Michael Albert's work and 
David Graeber, it's like, you know, that, that's one important place where this kind of language gets taken up. But I also think maybe universities could be reinvented in such a way that they could help build place-based economies or even on a slightly larger scale through social procurement practices. So my alma mater, UMass, sources all of their dining commons dairy and local produce from the immediate community, right? So, and I think that's something that could be done probably even easier here in Australia, given the growing season is never ending, um, from what I can tell as a northerner. Um, but, you know, the, the, I mean, there's others, like the Next System Project, for example, started by Gar Perovitz and Gus Speth. They've been trying to collect sort of a network of networks to think about all, all the conversations happening globally, like this one, about a new economy. And then the last thing I might mention is the 3 million person, 30,000 organization solidarity economy movement in Brazil um, that centers on a mapping and social network technology that they came up with themselves called Nosfero. And Nosfero allows co-op organizations to form value chains that link them together, much like the Chantier in Quebec. Right, so again, it isn't anything new, but I guess, you know, that um, our first speaker really talked about why it is that, why, why have things come up short in the past? Well, we can learn from that as a basis for um, really taking advantage of all these kinds of information technologies that might allow us to share successes and setbacks. You know, that, that we're at a great moment in history to be thinking about this together. Um, I just wanted to make a link between what Vern said and what Jai just said, because uh, I think there is an important link. Um, it's very important that we understand our own history, because otherwise we keep on repeating errors. Um, we keep on, for example, having expectations of the labour movement, which um, are questionable in terms of our history. And to illustrate that, in the 19th century, as, as Verne said, the cooperative movement was very strong in this country and it was very strong in Sweden. So there's two parallel de um, developments happening at the same time. Almost every country, town and suburb in this, in this country had a school of arts, a mechanics institute or a literary institute. And they were self-managed institutions of working class education. The only remnant that's still left of that is the WEA, the Workers' Educational Association, which is just one small organisation now. So that somewhere between the end of the 19th century and the middle of the 20th century, the Australian labour movement turned away from self-managed cooperative principles to become a statist movement, an advocate that all change must happen through the state. And that has affected our politics ever since. Even now, we, we, we de, uh, de, disempower ourselves by expecting that all we need to do is uh, elect a Labor government and then change will happen. It doesn't happen like that. The interesting thing was that didn't happen in Sweden. So that by the 1970s, 80% of the adult population of Sweden were participants in what were called study circles. And those study circles were the engine room of Swedish democracy. 
so that in the 70s, Sweden led the world in foreign uh, development aid, had the most advanced position on questions like the Vietnam War, uh, and a whole lot of other, other issues. They were, that was all arising out of the, uh, the, the uh, study circle movement. Olaf Palm, the Prime Minister at the time, described Sweden as a study circle democracy. I think this is what you're trying to reinvent, and it's so important that you succeed, because we need to develop that capacity for self-education, to experiment, to reflect on what we've learned, to build on it. Um, we need to rebuild that capacity. We've disempowered ourselves by this reliance on the state as the only effective agency for social change. Thank you so much. And I, I say here's to doing things again, learning to do them again together. And thanks very much to the panel for a great discussion. Thank you.